All right, brothers and sisters, please turn with me this morning to Second Thessalonians as we continue our study in this letter of Paul to the church in Thessalonica. We will be considering today verses 11 and 12. So please turn with me and let us read God's word together. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as the reading of God's holy word. Well, on December 6th of 1618, followers of then deceased Jacob Arminius arrived at the Synod of Dort in order that some of their teachings may be evaluated for their orthodoxy by the Dutch Reformed churches of whom they were a part of. Now, these teachings that were going to be evaluated at the Synod were summarized in five points articulated by the Arminians themselves, which dated back to the year 1610, with a document which came to be known as the Remonstrance of 1610, which was a petition seeking toleration by the Church for their position. And it's the response of the Synod to these five points of the document that have thus been recognized now around the world as the five points of Calvinism. Now, one of the main contentions of the Arminians in their five points was articulated in Article 4, which said this, The grace of God is the beginning, continuance, and completion of all good, so much so that even the regenerate man can neither think, will, or do the good, nor resist any temptation to evil without prevenient or persisting or assisting, awakening, following, and cooperating grace. So all the good deeds or works of which man can think must be ascribed to the grace of God in Christ. But as to the manner of the working of this grace, it is not irresistible. You see, they were teaching that the will of man must cooperate with the grace of God in his salvation. We can choose to resist or to embrace that grace. Now, in response to this belief, the synod, in absolute consensus, responded that they reject the error of those who teach that grace and free will are partial causes concurring together for the beginning of conversion and rejects those who teach that God does not efficaciously help the will of man to conversion before that the will of man moves and determines itself. You see, the synod rightfully rejected the teaching that man has any part, and in particular here, in their own regeneration. And that's because the nature of the will is such that we are incapable of choosing God. And so salvation does not consist in one part human work and one part divine, but from start to finish and everything in between, it is entirely the work of God to bring about his sovereign decree by his infinite power according to his good pleasure and for his own glory. And this means then that man is incapable of throwing a wrench into the plan of God. They can neither deny the internal grace of God 
nor can they will their own conversion. They can't will that internal grace within them. Because if this is not the case, and the Armenians are right, our text today, I believe, <clears throat> loses all of its meaning. And so it begs the question, what does our text this morning say about salvation for you, for I, for these Thessalonian saints? Well, verse 11 is really a continuation of Paul's thanksgiving from verse, uh, verse 3. And that thanksgiving is directed toward whom did we say? Does Paul thank the Thessalonians for their faith and their love? Well, let's look together there to find the answer. Paul says in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. You see, it is God Paul thanks for their faith and love. And now in verses 11 and 12, Paul simply prays for the completion of this work of salvation in them by God. Paul doesn't say, we thank you, God, for this grace, and yet we thank you, Thessalonians, for freely exercising your will to agree with the grace of God. No, God alone is deserving of the thanks, because God alone is whom salvation is dependent upon. And so, brothers and sisters, by the end of our time together this morning, we hopefully will have given our own answer to the Arminian protest, which accords with the Synod of Dort and with their own confessional standards. And so it is our goal this morning then to look at this prayer of Paul under three headings to help us understand the truth about salvation, that it is from God and He alone. Now I know that I don't have to convince any of you about who salvation is from, but it is always good to, to stay sharp, to be able to refute error and articulate a coherent defense as these teachings still exist. Uh, even though Calvinism has come roaring back in recent years, or at least the, the five points of Calvinism. And yet, brothers and sisters, we don't want to just sharpen our theological knowledge in order to shoot down bad doctrine. But it's also good to be reminded of how salvation is a complete work of grace by God, and have that humble us, and to draw us to God in meditation and in prayer as we reflect upon that sweet reality that exists for us as believers. And yet also, then do something about it. Right? To imitate Christ in our daily life. And so, our three main points this morning are as follows. Point one, God's free goodness. Point two, God's infinite power. And point three, God's glory in Christ. So point one, God's free goodness. Let us revisit verse 11 once more, where Paul says this, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power. See, Paul prays that they may be made worthy by God and may fulfill every resolve for good, Paul says. Now, I think a better way to understand verse 11 and the way that the King James and the New King James translate it is that instead of Paul saying that he may fulfill every resolve for good, Paul asks that God may fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. So that what Paul's recognizing here in his prayer first 
is that the very foundation or cause of our salvation is found in the free goodness of God. The very reason you and I are counted worthy of the kingdom of God is not because you and I are so great God just had to have us in this kingdom. Nor is it because we first made a choice for Christ. But rather it flowed from the free goodness of God. And the scriptures abound with examples that support this. But for sake of time this morning, one will suffice. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says this. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will or according to the good pleasure of his will. You see, it was God's free goodness that was the cause of our salvation. He predestined us to be sons and daughters through Christ out of goodness. You see, it's no longer free goodness if he saved you based on what he already knew you would believe. If he looks down these corners of time and he, he sees this person's going to believe and this person's going to believe. Because if that's the case, then he has to save. He has to save certain individuals. He's forced to give them salvation because of what he already knows that they'll do. And so now God has become compelled to do so. Or else he's no longer a good God. And so his decision to save is no longer free. But it's bound by the decision of the individual. They decide whether they are saved or not. Their will and not God's is what determines salvation. The will of man becomes the common denominator in salvation. Sure, they may say they recognize God's free goodness, but only because he chooses to save men and women in general. He, he's good in that he offers grace to everybody freely. But what that teaches, even if unintentionally, is that it is really by the good pleasure of you and I that we become adopted sons and daughters of God. It makes God just like that person in the mall when you walk in and they're handing out coupons for a free entree to some restaurant in the mall, right? It makes them to be just like that person who hands it out. Yet, if you really want it, you have to go take that coupon, walk to the restaurant, and buy the, and buy the meal and get the free entree, right? God can only offer it, but it's up to us. But this turns the text in Ephesians that we just read on its head. Because it's that God predestined us according to his own good pleasure, not ours. Paul prays in our text this morning that God would make us worthy and that he would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Where is man in any of this? Nowhere. Because God is not prompted to do something by anyone, but by himself and what he has determined. And he can do so and has every right to do such because all is his. Everything belongs to the Lord. This is what we read in Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, as the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, they worship, saying this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, 
and by your will they existed and were created. You see, I don't understand why people are so indignant over the fact that God and not man is the cause and foundation of our salvation. He created. He can do whatever he pleases. And we see this played out in man in natural life today. And everyone understands and no one has a problem with it. I mean, think about if you have a job. The owner of the company, the one who established it, who created who founded it, he gets to hire who he wants. If you meet these specifications, I'll hire you. If you agree to follow X, Y, and Z. And nobody says that's unfair. That's because he started the company. He gets to determine the qualifications someone needs to have in order to be hired. He sets up the rules. So God created the world and everything that exists, and he gets to choose and determine what will come to pass in it according to his good will and pleasure. He determines who can be in his presence, who is fit to inherit eternal life. As he is the potter, and we but the clay. And now our problem, though, is that we all broke the rules already. We don't qualify, none of us, to be in his presence. As God says, sin is the transgression of the law. And the wages of sin is death. And all have died and fallen short of his glory. And so the reward for transgressing the law are his judgments according to that law. You see, but grace is according to his free goodness. And so no one can ever say that God did right or wrong in giving or withholding grace because it has nothing to do with right or wrong but rather it's according to his free goodness alone, whether he chooses to give favor and grace. Again, think about it this way. If I had a ticket, one ticket to the symphony orchestra, and I didn't want to go, and I gave it to my neighbor uh, and myself instead of the north, I have wronged nobody. Nobody can ever claim that they've been wronged for not receiving what they haven't earned. That's why salvation is said to be according to God's free goodness. It's not goodness shown because of merit. God is not under compulsion to act. This is why James can say in chapter 1, verse 18, of God, of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his will. Again, we see that it is God's will that brought us forth. It is God's will that made us believers. Not our own will, and not apart from him. It was he who first loved us, which is why we love him. It is because he first chose us that we draw near to him. This is why our salvation is said to flow from God's free goodness. But it's accomplishment. It's bringing about can be attributed to God's infinite power. Which brings us then to point number two. Look back at verse 11 with me, please, brothers and sisters. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. And here is point two. And every work of faith by his power. Right. Every work of faith by his power it is God's free goodness we see 
that is the cause of salvation, but is God's infinite power that brings that salvation to pass. It is God and He alone that brings us from death to life. It is God who changes the heart of the sinner. It is God who infuses the soul with habits of grace. And it is God who gives to you and I saving faith. But for large swaths of evangelicalism, they wouldn't agree with this entirely, would they? And the reason I think that they would not agree entirely with this is because so many attribute too great a power to the human will. In fact, one defender of the Arminian position during the time of the Synod of Dort was quoted as saying this, Arminius prefers saying that God gives further grace to him who makes right use of the first grace, but denies further grace to him who does not make right use of it. You see, the thinking is that we can, by our own will, decide to grab hold of the first grace or not. And all men have that choice. And if you choose right, he'll give you more of it then. But if you choose wrong, now he's going to deny you. But if you say that, this makes salvation, at least in part, a human effort, whether those on that side want to admit it or not. And so that's why it's important, brothers and sisters, to understand rightly whether or not we are able to, by our own willpower, choose God. Right? This has great ramifications for what we believe for what we teach our people, for how we present the gospel to unbelievers. Do we have it within us to choose God? Because if you do, then it makes sense to get real creative in worship in order that you can draw unbelievers in and so you dumb down the scriptures and you stop teaching doctrine and you just get real practical with the people because you have the ability to make them choose otherwise. But yet, as Reformed Baptists, we say no to this. We know that we do not have the ability to choose God. And many texts testify to this fact, that we are utterly incapable of choosing rightly. As our will now, because of the fall, by nature is opposed to God. And it is free only insofar as to choose according to its nature. And its nature is a fallen one. And yet this is why people people hate this so much. They can't stand to be told that their freedom is not absolute. They say, I choose what I want every day. Nothing hinders. Nothing stops me. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. What happens right after the fall, just prior to the flood in Genesis, Genesis 6, we're told, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That seemingly is a pretty universal diagnosis and excoriation of the entire human race. No one can choose God. No one wants God. Our hearts from birth are bent away from God. We have no desire to love and to worship the true God. 
But then some might ask, well, then how are there so many Christians in the world without becoming one while the whole time kicking and screaming against God and trying to fight against it? Well, this is because out of the free goodness of God, he causes us by his infinite power to believe. Paul Helm in his book on human nature from Calvin to Edwards says this about the beginning of salvation. He says, regeneration is an event. It's a hidden change in the soul. This means that faith is a fruit of regeneration. It comes about through that internal renovation worked in us by the Holy Spirit, which then results in the will of man now being inclined to trust and believe in Christ and believe the promises of the gospel. And God alone is the one who has brought about this change, the triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a work of His power. Brothers and sisters, you and I are powerless. You and I could never overcome our own sinful heart. And we're only fooling ourselves if we think we could. But God can, and He does. In fact, he promises this for the believer. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, we are told this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and in a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He promises to do it apart from you and I. In fact, he says, I will, I will, I will. I mean, reading this, how can anyone hold confidence in the flesh that we can make the choice so that we have any part in our own salvation? It is God who is always 100% in affecting that change. If you think that man's will has something to do with it, whether that's embrace this internal grace or reject it, then you have to say that God has a much lower percentage than a hundred. Maybe that's 75%. Maybe it's 50%. But anything less than a hundred percent success rate for God diminishes who God is. It diminishes His power and His glory and His ability to accomplish His purpose. It reduces the power of God. And it elevates, it uplifts, it esteems the power of man. You see, man's problem is that apart from God, no matter how strong someone believes their will to be, you will never be able to resist the power of the devil. Peter tells us our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it is the devil who this world is under the power of. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, we as believers are comforted by his words that this isn't the reality for you and I any longer. And John writes this, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And who is it that is in you and I, brothers and sisters? That is the Spirit of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that is that link between God and ourselves and being able to understand anything spiritual. 
And yet the, the gift of the Spirit comes from Christ who overcame the devil, who subdued his power and triumphed over a defeated foe on the cross so that we who are now in Christ by the power of God can resist Satan's devices. And so we are not to be foolish. Satan is stronger than man and so it is necessary that God by his infinite power make us a new creation in Christ. Give us his spirit and that he would make us holy and give us his grace so that we may respond. But it's a response to salvation already granted, already given. And so this is that work of faith then by God's power that Paul's speaking of at the end of verse 11. It's that faith along with everything that proceeds forth from it. That being our response that comes about by the exercise of God's infinite power. So that work of faith is about enduring trials and saints' temptations and earthly affliction that these saints themselves are being praised for by Paul. It's not just regeneration or justification, but also sanctification and even our glorification that these words entail. But it's God completing what God has started. It's perseverance to the end. It's growing in faith and the outward expression of that faith. But it all falls under the infinite power of God. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 we read this he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ one chapter over in verse 13 we're told for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure you see even what might be considered a work of faith on our behalf because we aren't just passive in sanctification, but active. Even that stuff that might be considered a work of faith on our end is still attributed to God. We aren't to take credit even for that. Because even now when we exercise ourselves in acts of faith, it is only because we have been given that habit of faith infused into the soul of the believer, which I spoke of earlier. So that now any and all movement that we make towards godliness itself it is only the power of God working inside of us. So as the picture becomes clear, we see this cause of salvation comes from the free goodness of God. It is all of God. The bringing to completion that salvation comes about through the infinite power of God. It's even though we may cooperate to some degree in our sanctification, it is still said, to be of and by God. This is what Paul's prayer consists of today. This is what he asks of God for the Thessalonian church after telling them in the preceding verses, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, that the judgment of the wicked was to come. The church was going to be granted relief at the coming of Christ. But Paul prays in the meantime that God would bring to completion that work he started that he would make them worthy of that heavenly calling for which they received, which flowed out of his free goodness and which will be accomplished by his infinite power. And so then, brothers and sisters, this leads us into our, our third and final point this morning. Third and final point this morning, which is God's glory in Christ. By his goodness, he gives us grace. By his power, he changes our hearts. 
and preserves us in the faith and will continue to do so until the end. But the purpose for it all is so that God's glory may be manifested in his Son, Christ Jesus. We read this in verse 12. Look with me there, please. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's purpose in bringing about the salvation of a people to be glorified amongst them and in them. Yet this can only happen through his Son. This is why no other religion, no other group of individuals, no matter how spiritual they think themselves to be, can ever glorify God. No matter how upright and moral the individual may seem, and throughout history there have been many who appear to be upright and moral individuals, those who stand up for injustices, those who stand up against the abuse of, of government to their people. But this does not glorify God. It is alone, brothers and sisters, a Christian privilege to be able to glorify God. It is a Christian right. And people may get mad at that, but that's the truth. It is only by Christ that we can rightly glorify God and by no other. It was Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But to many unbelievers anyway, if they're honest, they don't see any reason to glorify God. Right? He's not glorious to them. There's nothing glorious about God to them. And many others who might actually speak the name of, of, of Christ, who may profess to be believers, who may have Bibles in their homes and crosses on their walls, fall into the category that John Owen says. They are like those who cry like Judas, Hail, Master! But in their hearts they crucify him. And so these false professors neither glorify God. And so we as believers... We must strive as true sons and daughters to glorify Him. We must see the great privilege we've been given in our salvation to rightly glorify God in Christ. And when we see it as such, we ought to ask in response, how best can we glorify Him? And how is He most glorified in us? He's glorified in us by what He has done. He's taken awful sinners and transformed us. He's taken liars and adulterers and thieves and idolaters and haters of God and now made us lovers of Him. So in the conversion of man, God is glorified because it's obvious that what has been done is a supernatural work of God. Our parents, our spouses, our children, our friends who knew us prior to conversion, surely can attest to that. Christ is also glorified in us when we do what we've been fashioned for. Right? We're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. When we show love to one another, when we have peace and unity within the church, when we are quick to forgive, when we have patience in an impatient world, when we are content, when most would find discontentment, these are times in which Christ is glorified in us. 
when we persevere in faith through suffering, as Christ is glorified in our weakness. This is what Paul tells us. Right? He says that when we see the power of God resting upon his people in our weakness. And so there's great benefit even for us when we do glorify God by our life. As Paul prays that Christ may be glorified in us, but that's not all that he prays. He prays also that we may be glorified in him. Thomas Manton said that when we glorify Christ, we are glorified. When we promote his glory, we also promote the glory of our own souls. And that makes sense. If we by faith are trusting Christ, and if we by faith are seeking his glory, then that living faith will not fail to be demonstrated in our works, which then will result in us being conformed in the image of Christ more and more each day, which means that you and I are receiving God's grace more and more each day. As we draw close to Christ, even through knowledge, the more our minds are transformed. As we read and we study and we grow more intimately with him, the more we are drawn into him through his appointed means in worship, the more glory for us. See, the more we promote him, we promote our own salvation. What a wonderful thing how that works. But again, before even we we start to think that any of this comes about through our own efforts and through our own works, Paul is quick to point out in the second half of verse 12 that this is all according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, even how Paul ends his prayer demonstrates that our salvation is all of God according to his grace. No human merit. No ability to boast. Remember, it is Christ who is the great physician. Think about it this way, brothers and sisters. If you and I were laying unconscious on the operating table and the doctor comes in and he's the one who conducts the surgery and he saves us, that was 100% the doctor. Our will to be brought back to life was non-existent in all of it. So how much more evidence should this be the case as Christ, the divine physician, brings dead sinners back to life? Christ heals us by his wounds. He makes us alive by his death. And now as saints saved and made worthy by him, we are to fix all of our thoughts and all of our desires on God's glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to live for God's glory in Christ. And how applicable that is for us in our current times today, isn't it? This is the reason that we are at home. When this virus is going about killing and uh, infecting many thousands upon thousands around the world, and as people look for answers and are paralyzed by fear, it is now in these times, that Jesus can be glorified in us, in the saints, in how we respond, in how we react, in what we say to others. It is in who we rely and turn to in these tough times that can glorify God, knowing that whatever might happen to us, whether we might get the virus and pass, or whether we die from natural causes 20, 30, or 40 years from now, we can know as saints, that whenever the Lord chooses to take us home, that we have been called with that heavenly calling, that he has made us worthy in Christ by his free goodness. He has given us a new heart, 
And by his power, he will bring to fruition all his purposes. And it will be for our good. But most importantly, it will be for his glory. And it will come about not because of anything that you and I have done to earn it. Brothers and sisters, please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to uh, read your word and proclaim your truth. Uh, Father, we ask that you would be with your people in a, a difficult time right now, that you would comfort your people, that you would make your presence known to them, that you would bless them, that you would increase uh, your gifts and benefits which you have bestowed upon them in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder that salvation is all of you, that we ought not to think that we play any part in that. We ought not to take any credit for that, and yet fixate our eyes upon you in thanksgiving and praise for what you have done for the saints in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we come before you this day, and we ask all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.